This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a great guest for you here today. He's a mobile home park owner-operator. He's a syndicator. He's a podcaster. A great all-around MHP guy. Please help me welcome my guest, Kevin Bupp. Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing great, bud. Thanks for having me here. Excited to be here. We finally finally got this thing done. I know I've had to reschedule a few times, but we're finally here, and that's all that matters. <laughs> it, it happens. I've had I've had coming. You, you've been like the the star power for my my newsletter for like a month. I'm like coming soon, Kevin Bupp, coming soon, and then oh, and, and we haven't done it yet. So yeah. I'm glad we got to, got this on the calendar. Uh, I know about you. I you know I see uh, listen to your podcast, read some of your stuff, obviously followed some of your deals. Uh, most of our audience probably has too. But in case they haven't, maybe tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into MHP, and kind of what you're doing today. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I try to keep this somewhat high level, but I, I've been a full-time real estate investor in many different capacities now for for 20 years. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm 40. I always forget my age half the time. Before, <laughs> I just turned 42. Um, but I got introduced to real estate at the age of 19, uh, bought my first single family property at the age of 20. And just like a lot of folks started out with single family. And uh, that's what my mentor had taught me. That's what he did. I didn't reinvent the wheel. I just, you know, just literally followed his model, which was small multifamily and single family rentals, um, you know, long-term rental portfolio. And ultimately did that for um, for my early to mid twenties, built up pretty substantial holdings of single family properties, uh, about 122 when the market finally crashed, but owned hundreds of them over the years. And then also started buying multifamily as well. Um, this is prior to 2008. I kind of like to break up my experience in two different sectors, you know, like pre 2008 then post 2008. And so, um, you know, pre 2008 owned big portfolio, single family, multifamily, and some uh, miscellaneous commercial properties. And then basically had a reset, you know, I uh, had a reset in 2008 and um, kind of went on a, a couple year hiatus, uh, started a few other businesses uh, outside of real estate. Uh, but, you know, the, the fire of real estate never really left my belly. And ultimately, I decided that, you know, getting back into it, I really wanted to rebuild with uh, something that was more efficient. Uh, and, and I kind of saw some of the pitfalls with the single family stuff, just the amount of energy and effort it took to build that size of portfolio, which isn't really even all that big, uh, that I could literally compound that by 10x, if not more, with multifamily. But that's kind of how I accidentally fell into mobile home parks. I, I went on a uh, kind of a journey, uh, 2010, 2011, just really talking to everyone I could that was still in the multi, either got into the multifamily space post-crash or survived uh, during the crash and was still buying multifamily because the world had changed at that point. You know, debt was very different. Um, there was still a lot of blood in the streets, a lot of distressed uh, uh, pro projects out there. And so it was a very different world than pre-2008. And so during this little journey of mine, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Randy. And uh, Randy actually was here local in Florida. Uh, Randy had been a banker for 30 years. And um, Randy had a lot of clients that owned and operated mobile home parks and RV parks here in Florida. And um, his story goes that, you know, after, you know, couple decades of financing them and seeing how much money my, you know, basically my clients were making when I retired, you know, he had a you know, good bit of savings and he deployed a couple million dollars and bought 
couple of mobile home parks here in Florida. And, uh, and ultimately he had lunch with him and he was very high on mobile home parks and it had been an asset class I'd never considered. And, uh, that two hour meeting essentially intrigued me enough to where it led me to kind of commit myself internally to buy my first mobile home park. So, um, we bought the first one back in 2012 after about a year of looking and making offers and backing out, getting cold feet, making offers, and then finally closed on one and literally owned that one up until January of this year. We just uh, sold that one uh, January of 2020. So uh, wow. we've been buying parks now for, so I guess you could say, you know, going on a decade, uh, it's been quite a number of years and uh, own parks today in 13 states. And in addition to uh, mobile home parks, one of the things that we started buying uh, as of recently are also parking uh, assets. And so you know, parking lots and parking garages. So that's aside from mobile home parks, but those two assets are kind of our bread and butter and our core right now. That's great. No, I've seen, I want to talk about parking too, because I've seen you post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn and social media about the mm-hmm. parking. And I actually, when I used to practice at a law firm in Kansas City and there was a guy that made a ton of money buying parking lots in, in, in distressed areas that were gentrified and he bought them for nothing. They were limited cash, limited cash flow, but cash flow. And then he ended up building office buildings. I ended up building condo buildings. I mean, he, he's a high school graduate that went from zero to a hundred million in that in net worth in 10 years and buying parking lots yeah. was crucial to that. And, and he's just a true hustler, but, um, I yeah, feel like that's definitely. that's like the mysterious story that you used to hear about mobile home parks. I knew yeah. a guy that knew a guy. Yeah. And, uh, no, I knew this guy. Like, I knew this guy. Was, this guy's real. Cri- it was very cryptic, and I know, but I mean, yeah. mobile home parks used to be very cryptic because, like, no yeah. one really ever knew anybody that owned one, or I never even considered that asset. I, I never considered that asset class. I literally, I didn't go to lunch with Randy because I wanted to learn about mobile home parks. I just enjoy meeting new people. And one of my friends was like, "You should go have lunch with Randy. He's a really smart guy. He's local, and uh, he's a fun yeah. conversation." And I left that conversation basically committing myself to go buy a mobile home park because he got me so excited about him. So now the whole world knows. Yeah, the secret's <laughs> out. Tell Randy, guys like me and you are ruining it for everybody else by telling, yeah, telling everybody exactly. about it. But uh, that's part of capital raising, right? You got to tell your, you got to tell the story. But unfortunately, uh, the secret's out. And I wish I had found it a few years earlier. But uh, sounds like your banker did. That's good for him. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I'm sure you've talked to your share of bankers too. I, I know my first syndication deal, I went to like I don't know, six or seven banks and they just, they didn't say no, they said hell no on, <laughs> on, on trailer parks. And yeah. then I ran into a banker and this was like, a, the deal was a million three. So the loan was about a million. And I said, I'd like to give, um, I had seller finance back, I teed up. The seller was willing to finance it, but he wanted 40% down. He was going to carry 60. So I was like, well, that's a lot of equity. So it would have been better if I get traditional bank finance. So I went to the bank and one bank told me, yes, but we need 50% down. And I said, oh well, that's God. non-starter, non-starter because I can get 40% down to the seller, no appraisal, no fees, no longer term, longer fixed rate. I'm not, so I said, no. And then I ran to another bank and I asked the guy, I said, hey, before we get going, I need at least 70% LTV, maybe 75. And then I'll, if you're willing to do that, but I'm all on part, then let's talk. And he, he said, well, I'll give you 80. I said, what? He goes, the best, the richest guys I know, our mobile home park owners. The best loans yeah. I've ever made are mobile home park owners. He goes, before I came to this bank, they never did them. He was, he owned a different bank, brought it in. He goes, and in fact, he goes, I got $2 million signature authority. So consider yourself approved. That was 30 That's seconds. That's awesome. 30 seconds in. He's like, there you go. After hearing no for the last three weeks, you know, so yeah. it, was, it was, it was nice to run to a banker that got it. Absolutely. Uh, more I, I more do. I think that was one of the biggest challenges that uh, that we faced in the earlier years of our business. Uh, banged my head against the wall, you know, hundreds of times trying to get financing for some smaller deals. You know, especially if the deal, if the if the loan amount was under a million bucks, 
um, yeah. you know, bank, you know, banging on door, you know, going and calling on basically every local bank in the area. And it was literally a crapshoot as to whether or not you might find that one banker that actually got it. Um, you know, many of the challenges is that many of these local banks, uh, you know, if you talk to one of the loan originators, I mean, loan originators are sales guys, they sell loans, <laughs> but they don't really have uh, uh, signatory power to basically commit to a deal. They've got to go in front of a committee, but they'll tell you anything that you want to hear as far as, yeah, we'll do that deal. Absolutely. We'll do that deal. We'll give you, I mean, they'll make promises that a lot of times, sometimes they can keep, but a lot of times things fall apart once it gets committee. And now you're three weeks into the process and your due diligence time has been eaten up. And so, um, a lot of challenges back in the day. However, I think now there's many, many more options um, as far as, you know, local, regional, national banks that get this space, that understand it, that are willing to lend in it. So very different times nowadays than what it was seven or eight years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that's one of the good changes in the last five or six sure. years has been lending. Obviously the, the downside of all this popularity is there's, there's a lot more people competing over deals, a lot of private equity, a lot of REITs, a lot of just mm-hmm. investment groups in general. Is that what you're seeing in, in, in the states that you're in as far as the marketplace is just a, a new froth of, of buyers looking to get into the space? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And we've actually exited out of a few properties over the last uh, uh, year and a half. And so, and, and most of the buyers have been, um, I wouldn't say new to the business, but I mean, you know, the last two or three years and, uh, you know, a couple of them being larger groups that have, you know, acquired fairly uh, substantive portfolios here over the last couple of years, they've been doing it. Um, you know, some of it being institutional money, some, you know, pension fund money, things of that nature. So just a very different type of player than, um, than what I, you know, had experienced seven or eight years ago getting into the space. Yeah, I hear you, man. It's, I've seen it, you know, when we're trying to buy deals and I've been off by mm-hmm. half. I'm like, what do you mean you're paying that much? I, I know the numbers too much. Like, it's not worth that. I've had guys overbidding like crazy on some of these projects. And yeah, we're like, here's selling a few. I've got a couple we're getting ready to sell. Uh, a couple of refinancing right now. One particular, I've only owned it for, well, it's been five months and the market's crazy hot there. And like, you know what, if, if people are going to pay, people are paying right now on some markets on pro forma rents, you know, hundred dollars, yeah. hundred dollar pro forma rents extra. And then, you know, cap rates and fives are lower. It's like, dang, that's a yeah. pretty strong valuation. Yeah. And I don't know who's right, right or wrong there. I, I will say that, you know, some of the assets that we exited out of, um, I would never have been a buyer at that price point. And that's even me intimately knowing the asset. Like it, I would not even been close to a buyer um, at what they, what they sold for. Uh, I know how difficult some parks are to run. You know, this, it's not an easy business. Some parks are easier than others, but it's not an easy business. I mean, there's lots of moving parts too. It's a very operationally intensive to a certain extent, you know, now if you have a 55 plus hundred percent tenant owned home, um, you know, four plus star community, you know, even they have their headaches, but that's about as clean as it gets, you know. Um, but, you know, if we're talking, you know, the typical two and a half, three star, you know, C plus class community, um, there's there's just a lot of moving parts to it. And, um, you know, not being able to hand off the management, third party management, having to have that in house, you know, you got to have a substantive portfolio in order to even justify having it in house. And so you go through this weird growing phase where if you're just starting to buy parks now and you're having to pay five caps for these things for like two and a half, three star parks um, and you're buying on pro forma, it's going to be very difficult for you to make money. It just is. Um, again, I, I guess it's hard to argue that because maybe there's plenty of other people smarter than you and I. Right. But, um, right. but I, I'm just, just speaking to the assets that we've sold off. You know, I, I know, I know them intimately. We've owned them for a number of years. I know the tenant bases, I know the market and I struggle to see how some of these 
uh, are going to actually make anything more than maybe a 6% cash on cash return on a C-grade asset. That, to me, that's just not enough uh, reward for the risk in the amount of time that would go into run an asset such as that. So, but you know, I guess to each his own, everyone's chasing right. you and it's hard to get it out there right now. So um, folks are willing to, to sacrifice and, and take much lower yields, uh, even on those lower quality parks. So, but I think that's been our biggest challenge over the past year and a half. I mean, we've got to outbid, you know, so many times I can't even count anymore. And, yeah. uh, and, um, and even, you know, stretching a little bit out of our comfort zone, even still getting outbid by, you know, 10%, you know, a substantial amount. Um, but you know, I, I, I've learned over the years going through the crash. I mean, you, you gotta, you really got to stick uh, to your criteria, especially during times like this. I remember rolling through 2006, 2007, just watching everyone, you know, think that if you didn't buy today, there's going to be nothing left at thereafter. And, you know, there's typically always some type of reset. There's, there's folks that are buying parks today that unfortunately won't be able to meet um, you know, you know, meet their projections uh, and, and have challenges down the road. I don't wish that on anyone, but it just right. it will it will occur. You know, especially when you're buying with such thin margins of safety. I agree, I agree completely. And I think that to your commenters or is somebody else, you know, not that they're right or wrong, but I think there's the key is different investment metrics, different yield yield portfolio mm -hmm. need. I mean, I've got a couple of investors. I got one client that I'm like, you're never going to fund this deal, and he funds it in like five minutes. And he's like. You don't get it. My investor context are looking for safety of capital. They're already maxed out their 401k. They're already maxed out their IRAs. Yeah. They already maxed out. They've already got the lake house. They've already got you know, the big house. They've already got a ton in the stock market. They're like, you know, I'm looking for something. They've already got, they're, they're leery of retail right now. Industrial's got low yield. Office is kind of shaky right now. Mm -hmm. Multifamily's got uh, low yield relative to the quality of the asset in a lot of markets. So mobile home parks, you know, it's, it's a compression of cap rates and yield. And, and offer some properties, but they're like, hey, we still the, it's still the best thing we can do, and it's a diversification, and it's a long term play. So I mean, like, okay, you, you guys have underwritten, you guys have analyzed this, you, just, you have a different yield requirement than me, as you mentioned, the six percent cash flow cap that doesn't get me out of bed in the morning, but I don't have ten million dollars laying around in a checking account to where I'm collecting zero and then negative with with, a brief, yeah. with inflation. So there are some guys like I got I spoke to me today. He's got I got thirty five million in liquid checking, like. Okay, you need to go place it in somewhere. You know, you have a, you 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 need to get that going, man. And obviously, that guy's raised a lot, made a lot of money. So, who am I to tell him that a that a spend? Sure. Right? Um, for sure. But no, that's 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 definitely. I think we're seeing we're seeing the same things in the marketplace. But I like your comment. You you obviously went through the recession there in the in the single family space, but um, of, of seeing other people uh, take a bath on properties. And I think we're going to see that in MH because there's people paying. I think the market's strong and market characteristics are strong. And will be forever, but some of these price points relative to the risk. What's your refi rate? I've got some clients. I'm trying to get them to pump the brakes. Like you're, you're not going to be able to do a 75% LTV cash out one year from now with a local bank on your first deal. I know your spreadsheet shows that, mm -hmm. but it's not going to happen. You know, I've been told no on that, and I got more deals and more balance sheet and more experience, and and they and they're not good for me. So. And then that timeline, you got to, you got to, you know, be more conservative in, in general is kind of how I try to preach it, but uh, yeah. teach their own. Well, I think some of the other risks associated with it that folks don't think of is, um, you know, and I, I can tell you from personal experience as, you know, when you talk about buying on future projections or future pro forma of, uh, you know, this is a hundred, hundred dollars under market. 
it, it's it, 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 I know in, in, th- in theory, it is just as simple as going in and literally, you know, giving out whatever the legally required notices, 30 days, 60 days that we're raising your rent $50 and doing that two years in a row. But I can tell you that more and more common, there, there's a there's a lot of energy behind uh, residents throughout multiple states. Um, there's you know community organizations that are are really fighting back against manufactured housing, and um, I can tell you that we've even had challenges over the last couple of years doing you know what I would consider to be a minimal increase when it's major lender market of you know, twenty five dollars or thirty dollars and, and receives pretty significant blowback. I mean, we went through a situation a few years back in New York where we had a rent strike, you know, because we raised rents and and it was very costly. So. And there's lots of uh, there's lots of traction that you know certain residents in certain states are getting with these um, with these different organizations, nonprofit organizations that are that are fighting for residents and and fighting against landlords and park owners, um, you know, to keep their rents or to enforce some type of rent control, what have you, keep them at a minimum. And so you know that's that's a real risk, um, both from a legal perspective. Uh, if you get tied up in some type of litigation or a rent strike, or even from a PR perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, news stations are just hungry for that type of, uh, of, uh, of content. And so um, just be weary of that when you look at something you're underwriting and saying, Hey, I'm going to get, I'm going to pay for the value today because I'm going to get to that hundred dollar increase in the next year or two years. I'm, I'm going to push it hard and um, just know that there's some potential downsides and blowback that might come as a result of that. Agreed. And then, I mean, even, even on top of that, one of my concerns is other people ruining it for me, not just on your own PR, but yeah. we bought a park in Iowa recently go. and it's significantly below market rents, but there's somebody else in Iowa that bought up like 15 oh, yeah. parks in the same County, bought them all and then increased the rent from 250 to 500 overnight. Oh man. And they, they, yeah. They're they're getting, so now all of a sudden to... rent control, rent controls a viable risk all of a sudden. Because yeah. like there's bad, I, I don't increase rent like that, but but there are people doing it. It's like, you're mm-hmm. going to ruin it for everybody. Like get to 500 in five years, you know, yep. maybe longer, but like, don't get there overnight. Don't get there in 60 days. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's another risk of, you you know, almost the, the game theory, if you will, of, you know, what's the other guy going to do? Like, uh, I'm not saying we should all collude on pricing, but I don't think any of us should try to gouge the tenants one because it's no, you know, morally wrong, but two is strategically it's a poor business play long-term for the industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I know the group you're speaking of and we're not going to name names here, but yeah, they did it in Iowa and uh, it, it was pretty drastic. It was the most drastic rent increases I've ever seen before ever. Um, I mean, I think it was, you know, anywhere between 60 and hundred percent rent increases um, shortly thereafter acquisition. Yeah. So acro- across thousands of lots, I believe. Right. It's, it's, it's definitely, it makes me nervous for the, and also for reputation. I mean, local home parks, you know, manufactured housing community, if you will. Now. They already have a bad reputation to start have with. Come, have come a long, well, they've come a long way yeah. from, from trailer parks, but we, we ain't there yet. And it's moves sure. like that, that are one step forward, two steps back. Now that the, the professionalization of management, uh, more lending opportunities, national mm-hmm. lenders, uh, national investment groups, and professional uh, buyers, all make the industry better um, and better for the residents as well. But when you get one or two bad apples out there gouging rents, it's like you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hurt it again. And well, you saw I'm sure you saw when you know, Elizabeth Warren was running for president and she was mm-hmm. bad naming Frank Rolfe and some of these other big players and um, it's on John Oliver's show and all this stuff that you know, like we're payday lenders. And I'm like, yep. you know, we're not payday lenders. We're providing quality affordable housing that's unsubsidized. Um, that is a, is a, is as far as I can tell, necessary in every community in the country. Yeah, there's absolutely. A shortage, there's a shortage, which 
you know, the underlying macroeconomics of the industry, you know, there's demand and there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a shortfall. There's a supply demand gap, if you will. So, um, you know, what, what, are, what do you think you're going to see? What do you think we're going to see on consolidation? I'm interested in your opinion on that because you got a good, you got a good pulse on this. As I mean, well. it's already happening. It's all right. You know, I, I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, now it's just timing because it's already there's there's plenty of groups that are running at consolidation. In fact, I know multiple groups when we talk about people that we think that they're overpaying for an asset. Uh, I know multiple groups that are I mean, they are purposely not purposely necessarily overpaying, but they're paying a higher amount than anyone else. But their whole objective is to consolidate a portfolio and then sell it at a premium cap rate to one of these larger institutions. And so they're essentially overpaying for pretty much every asset, but as a bundle can get some type of compressed uh, cap rate on the exit side and justify that, that consolidation and that portfolio sale. So I, and there's multiple groups out there doing that right now. Um, and so, I mean, as far as like the overall picture of consolidation, I don't know what the time frame looks like, you know, before, I don't think everything will ever be consolidated because there's always still going to be parks that don't necessarily fit the size criteria um, for a larger uh, professional or institutional investor or in, the, or in the right marketplace. You know, there's going to be still plenty of like tertiary and very rural markets where parks exist that, you know, a professional operator is not really going to have an interest in owning. And then aside from that, there's always going to be operators that just don't, don't do a good job of running parks. I mean, th- th- to where they get into the space. Uh, again, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's also not super straightforward and easy. I mean, there's unique intricacies and idiosyncrasies that exist in this, uh, in this particular niche. And so I think that there will always be available parks, just probably less than maybe what there are today as far as trading hands. And a lot of that I think will be just, um, you know, mismanagement, you know, pure mismanagement, which will always exist. But um, I, I can already see that the consolidation is, uh, um, you know, consolidation paired with, um, you know, incredibly historically low interest rates and, and really a, a good available debt now for parks, that consolidation is happening uh, incredibly fast. So um, you and I were just talking about this before we started recording. I mean, it, it, over the last year and a half, it's been it become incredibly more difficult to find, you know, what you or I might determine as a, as a fair deal as a fair deal, not, not stealing it, not, you know, buying it way below market, but a fair deal that's in a good marketplace. And uh, those, those are just even, those are challenging to find today. And I think it's only going to get more challenging here over the coming years. So, um, you know, time will tell. I think that I, I am a firm believer in that there's always opportunity out there. If you're willing to dig a little harder than the next person. And I think that's where the relationships come into play. There's still tons of mom and pops. It's still fragmented industry. So, right. you know, that's where these long-term relationships uh, uh, and rapport come into play. And, and we've, we've fostered deals. I think the longest one that ever took us from like initial contact to close was nearly three years. It was a very long time. Sure. Um, uh, you know, so that deal cycle is pretty long. And so you can, you can still find those because there's plenty of sellers out there that want to sell. They want to sell at a fair price, but they also want to sell to someone they like and exactly. ultimately might not choose to sell to a larger professional uh, institutional player from New York or Boston or something like that. They'd rather sell to someone that they like and trust. Then that could be possibly you if you put the time and energy into building that relationship. So I think those will always be there, at least for you know the the, the coming you know decade or two. But sooner or later, big portion of the industry, just like a multifamily, will be consolidated by the bigger players. No, I, I agree. I think that's a, that's a great a great synopsis of where the markets. And I, I agree. That maybe one addition I would have on the ones that are not going to be consolidated is there's going to be that crotchety old man that's never going to sell at any price. And then, and then you got to deal with his kids or grandkids or state. I mean, I've, I've run into a few of those guys who are like, get off my property. I'm never going to sell. You know, and you can't even get to them. And, but those are where the deals are. Cause eventually someone's got to do, as you mentioned, like build rapport. They, they, 
I try to separate myself. Hey, look, I can't be the most, I'm not the richest guy in the world. I'm not the biggest outfit in the world, but I'll take care of the property. I'll take care of your tenants. I'll be fair. I'll do what I say I can do and try to set myself apart like that. And yeah. You mentioned three years. My dad found a deal. It was in our hometown. Um, it's a nice park. It was 90 pads, concrete roads, carports in every house, double wides, uh, garages on several of them. And we're in the process of expanding another 13. So go over 100 pads. Mm-hmm. So we really wanted this park. You know, it was a nice park. Um, and my dad called the guy every three months for five years. And in most time he's hard to reach. Most time he said, ah, let me get my paperwork together. No, I don't want to sell. I don't want And he was a crotchety old, he wasn't even that old actually. And he's 60 going on a hundred, you know, but he was just a grumpy old man. And finally he said, here's the price. And, you know, not a penny off, you know, and it was a fair price. And we're like, obviously we, we bought it. Right. And it's, and it's like, but it took literally years and years of follow up and, and he, he had no sign. He, he was, he lived in the park and he had a sign on his door, he had a rent, he had a rent box and he had a sign on his door that said, tenants, residents, do not bug me. Do not knock on the door. So he, <laughs> I love he it. Was that, he was like that hard to get a hold of. And as a result, you know, everybody else in the country wasn't able to get to this guy. And we were able to, we were local and we were able, he was a farmer, you know, we were able to get to him and, and the rest is history, as they say. Hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the grumpy old guys. I love once you finally break through to him, uh, it's, it's a yeah. very rewarding experience. It's yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not easy, but it's definitely fun. Um, so maybe you can tell us a story or two of one of your, 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 your best moves you've made on deal, or maybe your, your biggest mistake and help our audience. Like, oh, don't do this. I, I forgot to get to phase one and now I'm paying the EPA out the nose or, you know, I, don't, I assume you didn't make that mistake, but yeah, but thank God we, we didn't did, make that you mistake. Get away with it. I mean, I know lots of people don't buy a phase one and then it works out, but then sometimes you hear yeah. an occasional horror story where people are like, Oh, it didn't work. That's actually, out. it's it's a good, that's a good topic to talk about. So we've never had a dirty, uh, well, we've never purchased a park that has had a uh, dirty phase, uh, dirty phase one. However, we've never gone to due diligence with a park that, uh, or without getting a phase one inspection done, <clears throat> there was a park in Pennsylvania actually my hometown, which I was kind of excited to, to buy because it was decrepit and it was in a great part of town. And I was excited to kind of like, you know, spruce up something where I grew up. But, you know, my family and all that still lives there. But anyway, um, the front of the property had uh, an old service station from, I mean, literally hadn't even been in service since like the 60s. It had like a uh, couple commercial buildings. One was a tire shop. One was a service station. Service station literally had been a landscape building for the last like 30 years. And we didn't even know it was a service station. Uh, anyway, we did a, a phase one and found a number of different points of the property that had contamination. Uh, well, we ended up doing a phase two because we found um, some reason to go that, you know, that further distance. And ultimately um, it would have been a pretty significant cleanup. And um, uh, you know, we, we spent a good bit of money, you know, getting to that point and tried to renegotiate. We were still willing to buy it, but at a significant discount. I mean, we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars and basically you're buying liability at that point in time. And so um, we, we couldn't strike a deal and we walked away, but I, I, you know, that would have been based on the size of that deal uh, and, 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 you know, the cost of the remediation efforts that would have absolutely crushed somebody's returns uh, or they would have got caught up in a massive lawsuit and legal costs that would have far exceeded the cost of even remediating the property. And so, um, you know, that money that we spent on that phase one and that limited, we did a limited phase two until we got to the point where we're like, okay, this is going to be either it's going to be costly and let's start the negotiations, you know, retrade with the seller. And then he was just being, he was the grumpy old man, grouchy old man. I'm like, I don't know what you're going to do, buddy. Like, 
whoever buys this from you is going to have the same issues. And now you have to disclose it because we've uncovered it. So, um, yeah, you know, you're, you're kind of in a a predicament. And so you should probably just sell it to us because we're going to clean it up. We're going to do our thing. And he ended up, I think he ended up selling someone else a couple years later, but in any event, we didn't buy it and we saved ourselves a lot of headache on that property. Um, but, uh, um, you know, another story, you know, the first park we bought is an interesting story. Actually, I, you know, I'd say the first park we didn't buy is even a more interesting, interesting story. And this is, um, this was back in 2011. We had uh, made a number of offers, but we had a park here under contract in, in Florida and, uh, uh, it was a listed park back then you'd see things listed here and there every once in a while that actually made sense. Not, not, not really any longer. You're not going to see stuff on loop that probably makes any sense. Uh, but we put this park under contract of 77 spaces in Florida, central Florida, city, water, city, sewer. Um, and I, this is had not bought a park yet. Um, kind of had a mentor had you know, gone to Frank and Dave's course, this, that, and the other. And, but so had not bought a park. I had done, I've done hundreds of renovations. I've owned apartment buildings, but this park, number one, it was it was like a tertiary market. But now I know like a number of Florida tertiary markets I'm very comfortable buying in. This one, I just didn't know all that well. Um, the part that really got me at this park, this is where I got cold feet. Basically, we put it under contract, 600 grand, 77 spaces, um, 75 of the 77 occupied. There was about, I think about 16 or 17 vacant park-owned homes. Um, some needed pretty significant repairs, probably on average 10K a piece, 10 to 12K a piece. Um, the part that I got cold feet on wasn't the renovations. It wasn't even really the market. I, I, I felt that there was sufficient demand in that market and that we would be able to do this deal. Um, we had owner financing structure as well with some very attractive terms. Um, but the part that got me was the current lot rents on the remaining tenant owned homes. So the remainder of the homes in that park, aside from those vacant park owned, were all tenant owned, but their lot rents were like, they were 140 or 160. I forget. The, they were incredibly low. And the market was like 300. Uh, you know, easily 300. And based on his ask um, and based how the park was being run and the cost we'd have to put into renovating those homes, you know, back then you like, you expected to get double digit cash on cash returns. That's just how sure. things were bought. Right. And so, um, but the only way that this park made sense is if we could go in and do like an initial, like 30 or $40 jump after, you know, whatever the first couple of months doing some improvements, what have you. And I, w- I couldn't get comfortable in the fact that I might lose people that I might lose residents if I do that big of a jump. And that ultimately we had to be able to get in a couple of years to market in order for this thing to be an absolute home run. And I got cold feet. I just did, you know, it, to me, it wasn't a home run unless I could do that. And um, we backed out of the deal. And about two weeks later, I came to a realization that I'm an idiot and that <laughs> I should, should have actually bought it. And I called the broker back up and I said, Hey, man, I'll let my money go hard right away. He's like, I'm sorry, man. We literally just signed a contract yesterday on it. And I ended up interviewing that guy, my mobile home park podcast about three years ago. Somehow I, I forget how he heard me tell this story and he reached out to me. He's like, Hey, I'm the one that bought that park. And, he, <laughs> and I made a million dollars or something. Like yeah. So, so he, he paid 600 for it, what I paid. And uh, he renovated all the park owned homes that were in there that were vacant. And I mean, he had sold this thing uh, even a year prior to us doing the show. And I wish, I mean, he probably shouldn't have because, but he sold it, he paid 600 probably put like another 200, you know, 250 into it um, between roads and some tree work and those park on home renovations. Um, I forget where he got rents up to. I think he ended up getting rents to maybe t- uh, 240 over, you know, two or three years. And he sold for 1.8. Uh, that, that park today easily would trade for three and a half million dollars, uh, easily trade for three and a half million dollars. So that's wow. the one deal I kicked myself in the ass for. And, um, you know, there's at some point in time and I'm, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not really risk adverse for the most part. I'm pretty calculated in that one. Like I, it, all the signs are there that I should do the deal. Yeah. And I just, uh, if I had one a person say, if you don't do it, I'm doing it. And they truly said that I would have done the deal. Um, but I didn't know that there was that much to me. I didn't know it was going to get eaten up that fast. And ultimately it, it just, uh, I, I never made a mistake again. When I, I you've got to trust your gut and my gut was telling me to do it and I didn't do it. And so, um, one other funny story I'll share real quick is with the first park, we actually finally did buy. This is a very distressed park up in Atlanta. It's one we just literally sold January this year. It's a 34 space park. Found that one on LoopNet as well. Again, interesting. It's the only two parks. Actually, I've found three parks over my lifetime that we ended up buying on LoopNet. This is uh, the second one that we've ever found. And uh, it was an REO had been uh, in court receivership for, I think, two years when we found it local realtor, residential realtor had it. Uh, he had never sold a mobile home park or commercial property before. The listing was horrific on LoopNet, which is what attracted me to it. Uh, it literally had one picture, which was an aerial shot. It had no financials attached, not even a summary of like how many park owned. How, I mean, it didn't say what the rents wow. were. It didn't say anything. I mean, maybe I had a sentence or two. Um, and I called the guy and I, you know, I, well, first thing I did is I looked at it on Google Earth. I looked at the Google Earth area and I'm like, and these homes look actually fairly new. This is so strange. Hmm. And I said, How, you know, what's the occupancy? He's like, Arr. he's like, ah, there's a couple people in there. I'm like, what's that mean? You know, he's like, ah, there's maybe two or three that are in there living. I'm like, well, the rest of the units. And I was like, who, who owns these? He's like, I think they come with the park. I'm like, you think, or, you know, I was like, and so I found out that all these homes, every single one of them came with the park. And these are all like 2005, 2006 homes. And this is, remember, this is back in like 2012. So these why homes are, they, are only why like, are they vacant? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, the story. So I'll give you the background of the story, at least what we heard from the, uh, the, the, you know, the local city, uh, as far as who the owner was, he was a local slumlord owned a couple of mobile home parks, trailer parks in the area. Um, and this park had been in pretty horrific shape, uh, had old rundown beat up homes in it, lots of drugs, you know, just bad elements. And this, this was that guy's kind of MO. This is what he had done in his other parks. And, at that point in time, uh, one of the major hurricanes had passed. I forget which one it was, but there was a lot of FEMA trailers coming on the market um, for auction. Not not travel trailers, but you know, two and three bedroom, you know, um, single wides. And basically, I, he had a line on an auction and knew that he can go buy basically thirty four, you know, fairly new at that time single wides for a good price. And so he got approval from the county to replace those old homes. They required that he put new roads in, new water and sewer lines. He basically. He ended up taking a loan of like $1.6 million on this property to do all this infrastructure improvements, bring these homes. And then he just continued in his old ways and ran it like a slumlord. So very quickly, he uh, defaulted on this note and I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, uh, you know, maintain that, that debt load on it because, again, he wasn't doing a good job running the property. So anyway, went to back to the bank. Um, we bought it. And so, but how I looked at it, they were asking originally $500K for the property. Um, even at that number, I looked at it uh, and, and I was like, you know, even if I had a fire sale, worst case scenario, I had a fire sale, every single one of these, these homes, uh, I'd be able to get my money back out of this. Uh, you know, that's kind of how yeah. I viewed it. Nice. And uh, we went to look at the homes. They were in pretty horrific shape. Most of the AC units had been stolen. I mean, over the years, I mean, just uh, every single, every single one of them needed a full remodel. And, um, and we took pretty nasty pictures and we set it to, to the bank. Um, and this realtor had never even been in any of these homes. And we tried to use that as leverage. And we also, we ended up buying the thing for like 200K. So we got a massive discount because wow. it, it had been sitting on the market for like a year. Um, number one, poor listing. Number two, bad broker. Number three, um, you know, the, there was no revenue for the homes were in bad shape. I mean, it just had a lot of things working against it. Sure. And um, we picked it up for, is it either 200 or 210? But anyway, 
we always like to go to the local city municipality and uh, meet with the mayor if we can meet with their you know his council meet with whoever we can to kind of let them know what our plan is right because this place was an eyesore and it happened to be almost catty corner from the mayor's office i mean so the mayor and the chief of police had to drive past this place all the time and so we made this you know this uh this pitch my partner and i um went up there had literally had mayor and his uh, he had like seven other staff members there and the chief police was in there code enforcement was in there he had everyone um and we this guy was a pretty intimidating dude he was like six three bald handlebar mustache his name was um Bobby Cartwright, Mayor Bobby Cartwright. He had like stuffed foxes on the wall. I mean, it was like a really weird, uncomfortable like uh, environment. And um, we gave him this grandeur pitch of what we were going to do this park across the street. We we're going to make it so much nicer. We we're going to do new roads, landscaping, renovate all these units, uh, do background checks on people so we don't have a, a drain on your, your police resources. And uh, he let us talk about 20 or 30 minutes, didn't say a word. And then we stopped. And he basically looked at us, he said, you guys are wasting your money. He's like, I've been trying to shut this park down for the last two or three years, and I'm not going to stop until that thing is wiped off the map. He's like, so I would suggest that you take your money and you go invest it somewhere else because we don't want you and we don't need you. Wow. And that was it. <laughs> and you still did it. It was a very uncomfortable. Yeah, my part, we walked out of the room. I'm like, well, that is not at all how what we expected was going to happen, right? And we looked no. at each other. We're like, so how the rest of this, how do it work? I think it's, I think it's worth the risk because all we have to do is like, as long as we show them, you know, that we are going to do what we say we're going to do. And we, what we did initially, we, um, we, we had closed on a private like two weeks later and we made an immediate connection with the code enforcement and built a rapport with her basically said, look, we're going to clean this place up. If you see anything, if you notice anything, call us right away. Here's my cell phone number and it will get cleaned up. We'll fix it. What have you. And so we basically just built a rapport with the code enforcement officer and, um, you know, started, brought three crews and started renovating things, kicked out the, the couple of tenants that were in there, the squatters basically is what they were. And then, um, so the big renovation process and then part, part of the way through the renovation process, we still, you know, it's sort of bad reputation. So people are still coming in, trying to dump stuff illegally and trying to do drug deals in there and things like that. People are still breaking into units and stealing AC units. And so what we did is we renovated one of the very front units and we donated it for a year to the police department and made a substation for them. So we put the electric on the heat on AC and stocked the fridge and uh, let them use it as a substation, which allowed them to basically have a presence there, uh, which ultimately lowered the drain on the resources because people stopped coming there very quickly. The word spread that this is no longer the place to do illegal activities. And um, the mayor, the long story of this all, the mayor called me, Mr. Mayor Bobby Carr had not, we did not have any interactions during this year and a half of us turning around this park at all. And um, he called me on my on my cell phone a year and a half into it and said, Mr. Bupp, this is Mayor Bobby Cartwright. I just want to take a moment. I feel like I owe you an apology. And anyway, he went on to say like he, you know, he originally thought mobile home parks were the problem. You guys have basically proven to me that they're not. He's like, I was pretty surprised that you ended up buying it with the threat I gave you. <laughs> and uh, he, he went in turn to write me a, rec a pretty stout recommendation letter that ultimately we've used many times again with you know, municipalities that have had issues with us coming in and potentially buying a park that's in distress and saying we're going to turn it around. Because a lot of municipalities just have a bad taste in their mouth. A lot of people talk big and they never do it. But ultimately, we've used that letter many times over again to get, you know, get a city, uh, give a city level of comfort that we're going to do what we say we're going to do and we're going to fix things up. So anyway, 
Uh, that's a, that's a great that's a great story. That's awesome. <laughs> I, that's a good idea too to have the police right there. We've offered policemen free housing many a times, and it, it never worked. Like, hey, come live here, bring your squad car, and and they, we've never really anybody take us up on it. Um, so we had to hire some moonlight cops and and stuff like that. But man, to get their substation th- there, that's great. I think with this one, just because it was literally right across from the you know, it's right across where where the where the police station was. I mean, I wouldn't even say they necessarily used it as a substation. Like they just knew uh, they park they would park a car there often. A lot of times there wouldn't be any officers inside, but they just knew that it would in the long run, it would help them lower the call rates uh, from that park. Cause that park got so many calls. It was truly a drain. This was like a, it was in Atlanta, Atlanta MSA, but it was a small little town incorporated town. And so, I mean, they didn't have a massive police force and it, any, any calls they got from that place was a drain on sure. the resources. So they knew that the long-term game, it would ultimately help and it would help us change the reputation and the image, uh, you know, of that place. And it did, it did. And uh, ultimately one of the mayor's staff member, um, she ended up living in that community for a number of years thereafter, which was kind of interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, Nate, that's great. I mean, that's, yeah, getting on the good side of the city is key. Yeah. And you know, I'm with you that sometimes they just, they just don't want to, they don't want to believe it. Um, I had a city that I used to be outside legal counsel to. So I knew the city, I knew the mayor. And I saw this park came up for sale. And, and at the time I was, I was no longer legal counsel. I was doing, retail development and looking at some other apartment development as well. And the economic development director for the city called me and said, Hey, this, this trailer park is going for sale. And we got 12 trailer parks. We want to get rid of them. And this, 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 the seller is willing to change the use. And we told them if the right developer comes along, we'll give them every tax incentive under the book to make it go away. So if you buy this and either put in senior housing or uh, multifamily apartments, you know, class a, we'll give you a property tax payment for 25 years. And I said, look, it's just the ground's not worth it. I said, the value of the ground is a million bucks. The park's going to sell for more than that, more than a million bucks. There's ground in a better location that's better suited for multifamily and, and senior housing. So I said, it's going to be a trailer park. So it's either going to be another California buyer that's not watching it, it's raining in the ground, or it's going to be me. And they, they didn't know that I was doing mobile home parks on the side. Um, so is it like, Oh, you're kidding me. We called you thinking you would make it go away. And I was like, I, I told him, I said, I'd like to buy it, but as a mobile home park. And I had, I had done some retail in that town too. So I wanted to have a good, I still own a commercial building in that town. So I didn't want to get rub them the wrong way. So I said, do I have permission to bid on this? And they said, no. And I didn't. And it, three or four months went by and, and it was, it was getting ready to be listed. That's when I had the, my dad came in town. We sat down with the mayor, city manager, economic development director and said, look, this is going to be a trailer park. It's us or somebody, somebody you don't know. Do I have permission to bid on this? And they said, okay, fine. But the mayor put me in his SUV and drove me around every park in town and showed me all the vacancies, showed me that one's got a hundred, that one's got 20, this one's a drug dealer, this one's this. Somebody was killed in that one. He goes, you don't, I'm just trying to tell you, you don't want to own a trailer park in this town. And I said, well, I'm willing to take that shot. Kind of like, kind of like you said there and, and the dad there and you know, the whole father son combo, we can get this done. And, and we bid on it and we, we got it bought and uh, we filled 60 lots in 18 months in that park. Wow. Um, I mean, wow. I mean, we're talking new homes or used homes, mostly or? new, about 10 used, about 50 new. Uh, I wouldn't sell that park today for 5 million. I bought it for a million three, mm-hmm. two and a half years ago. Um, and, it, and it was because I had to pitch the mayor on it. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we, we delivered and I haven't gotten that apology letter, but I need to get that. But uh, I'm asking for an expansion of that one. Uh, the planning guy's on board. The mayor's not on board yet, but that's, that's, that would be my apology letters. He lets me expand it. 
Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, the key to key to you know the key point there is if you've you've delivered, you know you said what you're gonna do and then you did it, and uh, you know you, you fulfilled your 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 promise and your goal and and then you got the benefit of it financially and mm-hmm. reputationally and for the next deal and that's what I was able to do a little bit on this one here. Um, so that that's just great and it's good for the industry, right? We we're talking earlier about absolutely reputation industry. Like there's a you know legitimate operator doing a good job to improve a crime problem and a homelessness problem or whatever else in the community and turn into something great. Yeah. You, you'll have some cities that still won't get on board. Uh, we had one in North Carolina <laughs> that uh, even after providing the letter, uh, mayor Cartwright even called uh, that mayor um, and uh, they just weren't having it. They, 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 they were steadfast in their belief that mobile home parks are what create the crime in their area. Um, that's where all the shootings happen. That's where all the drug deals happen. I mean, that's, that wasn't the case, but that's how, what's what they thought. And that's what their beliefs were. And um, so they, you know, the interesting what they did is they they instituted kind of on the fly some restrictions on because this the park we bought had fifty vacant pads, all developed, all had had homes on them in the past. Um, most of them got repoed during you know the uh, the chattel crisis back in ninety nine two thousand, and um, they instituted on the fly some restrictions on what type of homes could be brought in. And they were trying to charge us like impact fees again, like fees that the developer had already paid when he developed this property. And we had to sue them. We had to sue the town. Um, and we won. You know, we actually yeah. won it, but it took about a year and a half and, you know, cost a good bit of money. But yeah. um, we had to basically take them to court, which was unfortunate. But we came out ahead and uh, we brought homes to that park and haven't had any friction since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the hard way. That's good you won. But yeah, that's, I, I have to threaten that. All, I don't try, I try not to threaten loss, but I threaten it, it feels like once a week. And it's, 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 it's often a bluff. It's like, I don't want to go through this yeah. brain damage or for my clients, like they don't want to pay to go through this brain damage. So it's great that you were at victorious, but man, I'm sure that was a brutal process. So, so the advice is, you know, what we, what we did there, and this might not work in every state, but you know, most every state has a manufacturer housing association. Some are much more active than others. Right. I mean, there's some States that like in Maryland, they have one, but it's, I've never been, been able to get a hold of anyone there. I don't think you can become a member. I mean, it's a joke. And, um, <laughs> But uh, this was in North Carolina, and they've got a fairly active association. And we basically just uh, we we called up and found out uh, who the association, you know, who their legal counsel was. You know, that legal count they had been well well versed in MHC law, especially as it applies to uh, North Carolina. So you know, who 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 to know better about you know the laws of that state as they apply to mobile home parks than the same you know law from that the association uses. So anyway, that might not be applicable for all associations, but North Carolina is a very active one. Um, yeah. so they've got good counsel behind them as well. And so that, that guy was a huge help. He didn't have to go research a lot of things, you know, he didn't have to spend time and, you know, hours upon hours charging us $450 an hour to Oof. research and, uh, um, you, you know, get up to date or up to speed as to, you know, what the laws are. <laughs> yes. I, I know clients where, hate that. Yeah, that's where it gets very expensive. Very expensive, very quick. Kevin, this is a great, great discussion. Great stories. Uh, before we part, any other last words, or if not, where can people find you? How can they reach you? Yeah, I don't think any 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 uh, lasting words. Uh, just you know, just it's a great niche. It's a great industry. Uh, lots of great people like Ferd and myself in the industry. It's fun, right? You get to meet yeah. cool people, and um, I like to see like a lot of a lot of now the a lot of the new young bloods coming in, right? There's kind of like the old generation now, the younger generation. So that's exciting. But as far as reaching me, two different ways: uh, our company website, SunriseCapitalInvestors.com. Uh, there you can go find out about all of our activities in the mobile home park and parking spaces. Um, and then my personal website, kevinbuff.com. Um, there you can 
get links to, I've got, I host two different podcasts. One's called the real estate investing for cash flow podcast, which is a uh, commercial real estate investing show. Uh, and then we also do the mobile home park investing podcast, which there's links to that on my own personal site again, kevinbuff.com. So. All right. Sounds good, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You got it. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.